Malachi, first one, chapter one. An oracle, the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, Yahweh says? But I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what Yahweh Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of Yahweh. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is Yahweh, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? Says Yahweh Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that Yahweh's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? says Yahweh Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? says Yahweh Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh Almighty. But you profane it by saying of Yahweh's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says Yahweh Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says Yahweh? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it up, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. And now, this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says Yahweh Almighty, 
I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. And you will know that I've sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says Yahweh Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of Yahweh Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says Yahweh Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Amen. And um, this was the view from our apartment. It was pretty special. But on that same day, uh, the normal tranquility of the English countryside was shattered when up in the Lakes District, a taxi driver named Derek Bird seemed to suddenly go crazy and he drove around in his taxi shooting 12 people dead and uh, wounding another 11 before turning the gun on himself, the 13th victim. Uh, Joy and I lived and breathed that whole massacre because British television, as you can imagine, ran at 24 hours a day. Didn't matter what channel you turned to, uh, there it was. Uh, at least three of the shootings were of people that Derek Bird uh, knew quite well, including his brother, his solicitor, and a fellow taxi driver. But the others seemed to have been uh, random targets as he drove through the district. What would explain such ruthless killing? Well, at the inquest into the massacre that was held a year later, and I, I sort of developed a bit of a not a, a morbid interest, but an interest because you know, we'd been there, um, not, not in the Lakes District, but um, not far away. Uh, the court heard evidence that, that Bird had been, he'd been dumped by his girlfriend. Um, he, he thought that his brother was out to get him in, in some family matters. He thought that the other taxi drivers had rejected him and, and ridiculed him behind his back. And he was, he was convinced that he was going to go to prison for tax evasion because he'd, he'd neglected to pay some tax. Uh, he was a man who felt deeply undervalued by all of those around him, taken for granted. But according to the evidence, Derek Bird was wrong about most of his fears. His brother actually loved him and was trying to look after him. His taxi driver mates just like to, to tease him, like mates do. He, he misunderstood it all. And he would have only copped a fine, probably a small fine, for unpaid taxes. 
Uh, all the indications point to a man who was paranoid, uh, obsessed with himself and resentful of being taken for granted to the point of madness. Uh, Derek Bird's insane outburst was tragic and bizarre. So what about God's verbal outburst in the book of Malachi where he complains that he is being taken for granted? Uh, Malachi reveals a God who loves his people dearly, but he's also jealous, jealous of his honour. He refuses to be ignored, refuses lukewarm or half-hearted devotion, who hates to be taken for granted and who therefore calls his people back to himself. It also therefore reveals a people who are taking God for granted. God's not wrong about this. God's never wrong. Uh, they'll even dispute God's love for them. A people who maybe once were excited about God and his kingdom, but who have settled into a comfortable and a declining spiritual malaise. And as I believe we're about to discover, it's a book that's addressed to you and me. Uh, so I've called these talks Engaging with God. And uh, here we've got the cogs there. Now, there was no collusion between me and my slide and the front cover of your... So uh, that was God's work, <laughs> that, um, that we got the same idea. Uh, the word engage has a number of meanings that are appropriate to this title and our look at Malachi. Uh, it can have the meaning, for example, of coming into conflict with somebody, as in engaging with the enemy or you know, engaging in debate. It, it can mean connecting with somebody, as in they're engaged in deep conversation. And it can mean being bound to someone by promise. You know, and we, have, uh, we use that term regarding engagement before marriage. All of these uses of the verb to engage apply to the book of Malachi. God is engaging with his people and the book calls us to engage with God and examine our relationship with him. So let me set the scene for you. Uh, we know very little really about the man Malachi, except that he was God's prophet or spokesperson to his people in the 5th century before Christ. So we're in the city of Jerusalem and various things in the, in the text, uh, little clues, tell us that we're, we're somewhere around 450 BC. The first clue is that the temple of Nebuchadnezzar demolished, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, demolished, the, the um, uh, Babylonian king, it's been rebuilt. It's nowhere near as grand as the temple that Solomon built, but it works, it, it's functional. A day-to-day -day life in Israel is fairly peaceful and non-eventful. There are no wars, no major catastrophes. Uh, no one's really prosperous, but everyone is getting by. Uh, another clue is that the word for governor in verse 8 is the Hebrew word for a Persian governor. So Israel is still under foreign rule. It's being ruled by the Persians. But at least they're back in their own country. There seems to be law and order. The kids are going to school. The crops are growing. There's food on the table. Everyone is getting on with life. They are settled. But there is one man who is very unhappy, who's not content. His name is Malachi. And as you pass him in the marketplace in the centre of Jerusalem, he might give you a quick smile, 
but he actually looks like he's carrying the weight of the nation on his shoulders. In fact, he is carrying a burden. For God has given Malachi the insight to see things the way that God sees them. And that makes Malachi deeply troubled. And God has given Malachi a message to deliver to the people, and that too is his burden. Uh, That's actually what the word oracle means there in verse 1. In Hebrew, oracle, uh, the the word that's translated oracle literally means a burden imposed by a master. And so however unacceptable this message might be, Malachi cannot change it. He must deliver it. It's his burden. And so verse 1 could be read this way. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel given to Malachi. And it will very quickly become clear, I think, that all is not right between God and his people or his church, uh, which was in the Old Testament was Israel, or in the, uh, at this point in time, it's narrowed down to Judah. Uh, the message of Malachi is about a spiritual problem to which those who have been Christians for a long time are also particularly susceptible. You see, when the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem from Babylon some 80 years earlier, uh, they were filled with enthusiasm for the kingdom of God. Hardship and suffering in in captivity in Babylon had taught them to rely on God and their lives were focused now on how they could promote the honour of God and live holy lives before him. And it may be the case for some of you that as you stop and think about it, There was a time in the past when you were actually more devoted to the Lord Jesus than you are now. You were much more consistent in reading your Bible and and praying. Uh, You made gospel ministry a priority. You were enthusiastic about seeing your friends and family come to know Jesus. But the years have passed and the spiritual flames are, well, they're burning a little bit lower. In the daily grind of work and and family and church rosters and keeping up with friends, somehow without really noticing it, there's been an erosion of your relationship with God. A cooling of the spiritual temperature to some degree. Of course you still trust Jesus. Uh, You've got your theology right. But you've conditioned yourself to sidestep the challenges of God's word when they occasionally come to you. And this creeping spiritual malaise is infectious. It's infectious within the church. Because as, as we sense, sense where others are, in our, uh, we're kind of reinforced in our own comfort zone. And we judge our own spiritual state, not by the Bible standards, by, but by the culture of believers around us. And so let me say that we're all in this together. I'm saying that every one of us is vulnerable to neglecting God the way that Israel had and focusing less on his kingdom and more on our own comfort and happiness. And that includes me. And that's what had happened to Israel and it can easily happen to us, which is why I think God has given the book of Malachi to us. And will you notice God's starting point in this discussion with us in verse 2? God takes the initiative. God starts the conversation. I have loved you, says the Lord. Not, uh, hey, I've noticed that you're taking me for granted a bit these days, but 
I have loved you. How provocative. He wants us to look up into his face, as it were, and hear those words again as if hearing them for the first time. I have loved you. And in the context of this message from Malachi, this statement implies a question. Why do you not love me as you ought to? Malachi knows how the people are thinking and just how badly this message was needed. And we're going to see that every time God makes an accusation or or raises an issue, the people are defensive. They they want to argue with God. They, They want it to be God's fault, not theirs. Something to do with the way that God is is not looking after them. They may not have come right out and said it, but the prophet knows that this is what they're thinking and he says it for them. So when God begins the conversation with, I have loved you in verse 2, the people respond, how have you loved us? Can you believe that? It seems that God's people have become so spiritually desensitised that they've forgotten, or at least they're no longer convinced, that God, God loves them. They seem to have lost all appreciation of the fact that God has been constantly and tirelessly at work in their favour. And so a short history lesson is needed to remind them. Look at the second part of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? That's the history lesson. Sounds like an odd question, doesn't it? But let me explain why it says volumes to the people of Israel. Uh, Can you see the little family tree that I've put on your outline? Uh, And it's up on the screen as well. The Israelites were the descendant of Jacob. The descendants of Esau were the Edomites. And God is naming those twin brothers Esau and Jacob, but he's really talking about the nations of Israel and Edom. Now, we haven't got time to go into the whole story, but... You remember that Esau was the eldest twin um, of the the two sons, the twin sons of Jacob, uh, of uh, Israel. And so as the eldest son, he not only got a double portion of the estate, uh, but it was upon Esau that uh, his father Isaac would have pronounced the blessings of God's covenant promises. Uh, Remember how God promised Abraham that he would make his family into a great nation and give them a land and bless them. But Esau despised his birthright. He couldn't care less about the promises of God. And one day he made a deal with Jacob, his, his twin brother, and said, mate, they're yours. And so in his providence, God bound himself in covenant love to Jacob and his descendants who were called Israel. And so the very question, was not Esau Jacob's brother, is intended to remind the people of Israel of how gracious and loving God had been to them. God had a particular love for them. It's God's way of saying, look how I have loved you with a a special love that I have not given to any other people. How he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, gave them the land of Canaan. How he promised to love and protect and provide for them if they would just trust him and demonstrate that by obeying him. God is saying, I kept my promises and I could not have loved you more. Yes, but what about now, God? I mean, that was was history. What about now? This is 450 BC. 
Where's your love for us now? And I think this is why God deliberately mentions the Edomites. You see, when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem 130 years earlier or so, uh, and destroyed the temple and looted the homes, uh, killed many of the people and and dragged um, most of the rest of them away in chains, what were the Edomites doing? The Edomites were one of their nearest neighbours. The land of Edom joined Israel. Uh, The Edomites, the descendants of Jacob's twin brother, were closely related then to the Israelites. Uh, They were their southern neighbours. But when the Babylonians attacked, the Edomites not only looked on uh, with a kind of a callous enjoyment, but they actually joined in. They joined in the looting and the killing. And they handed fleeing Israelites over to the Babylonians. And these Israelites in Malachi's day have not forgotten the treachery of the Edomites. And so here God is making it plain that he's not forgotten either. God will judge Edom just as he had promised through the prophet Obadiah. And so this startling declaration in in verse 3, Yet I have loved Jacob, says the Lord, but Esau I have hated, is a kind of a restatement by God of his covenant love for his people. This love-hate wording was a common Hebrew figure of speech used to emphasise a radical statement. Uh, The Lord Jesus uses this same figure of speech, for example, in Luke 14.26. Do you remember what he said? He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father... And his mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what's Jesus saying there? He's not actually telling us to hate those dearest to us. Of course he's not. But it's a way of emphasising the radical truth that our love for him must greatly surpass even our love for the, the most precious people in our lives. Here in Malachi, God is saying that his love for Israel should be obvious when compared to how God has treated related people like Edom. In fact, soon the Edomites will get what they deserve, the wrath of God. God says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Edom will get what it deserves, but Israel will get grace. I have loved you, says the Lord. Perhaps the people that Malachi is speaking to are not convinced yet that they're they're actually taking God for granted. And so Malachi proceeds to point out how they are showing contempt for God by their gifts and offerings. He says to them quite bluntly in verse 6, It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. The charge is specifically addressed at the, uh, to their spiritual leaders, but as we'll soon see, all of the people are involved. Now, in Old Testament times, before the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross, uh, the priests were men who were specially set apart by God from the Israelite tribe of Levi uh, to kind of bring God and his people closer together. Um, There's more to it than that, of course. But in those days, a man would bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed 
uh, for his own sins and for the sins of his family. The shedding of animal blood was a kind of a, a temporary way for God to deal with the sin of the people, to demonstrate to them uh, his, how horrendous sin was, that uh, it had con- really serious consequences, how offensive it was to God and how it needed to be atoned for. And so the, sacri- the sacrificed life of the animal, it, it didn't really pay for the sin, of course, but it was a way of God demonstrating that Uh, or allowing the the people to demonstrate to God that they were sorry for their rebellion against him and God was able to show mercy. It all looked forward to the coming of Jesus, uh, who then gave his own blood as the true and effective sacrifice for the sins of, of all of those that God was saving back then and now. Now, Jesus is himself our priest Uh, He's the one who restores the relationship between God and man. There's no human priesthood any longer. But in the time of Malachi, as the people made their sacrifices, uh, their sin was set aside to be dealt with at a later time. And of course we know that that later time was uh, when Jesus came and um, he gave himself as a sacrifice. The role of the priest in Malachi's time was to act as an intermediary intermediary between God and the people. Um, They were there to make sure that the sacrifice was the right one according to the law, according to God's rules. And they were therefore responsible for reminding the people of all that God had said. So why is God so upset with them? Why does God use such strong words like contempt? We'll have a look at verse 6 where God starts by making a statement that all of the priests would have agreed with. A son honours his father and a servant his master. Everyone has that expectation. That's the way these relationships work. But here comes the rub. If I am a father, says God, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. The priests are stunned. Who, us? We're the ones labouring every day in your temple, God. We're at the very front line of service to you. How have we shown contempt for your name? And God answers in verse 7. You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? Well, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. The Lord's table uh, was a a bench. It was a workbench at the gates of the inner court of the temple where the priests slaughtered the animals. They slaughtered the animals on this bench as the people brought them to be sacrificed for their sin. And so on the Lord's table, the animal could be examined by the priest before it was killed to make sure that it was good enough, that it was of the right standard according to God's rules that it was good enough to be offered to God. Uh, Leviticus chapter 22 is uh, uh, one of the places that sets out God's rules for this. The priest knew that well, and it said that a sacrificial animal was to be a male animal without any defect. But you see what is happening. You place defiled food on my altar. And this is why God castigates the priests in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. 
They had God's law. They were supposed to teach the people how they were to worship God by loving and serving him. But instead the priests were compromising as if it didn't matter how God was treated. As long as you brought something. And so God says in chapter 2 verse 7, if you have a look there, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you've turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You've violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, the priest knew that what they were accepting from the people and killing and then offering up to God was actually the trash that nobody wanted. The blind animals that would soon die anyway. The scungy, disease-ridden animals that nobody would want to eat. The old and the lame that were too weak to walk and probably wouldn't survive much longer anyway. A sacrifice is meant to be something that costs you. Otherwise, it's not a sacrifice, is it? That was the whole point of offering an animal from your flock or herd that was the best. As a way of expressing to God your sorrow for the way that you treated him. As expressing your honour to God. But there was nothing about the so-called sacrifices in Israel that honoured God. Look at verse 8. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your Persian governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Imagine an Israelite who wants the governor to approve some measure, like a building permit. And he would go and appear before the governor and take an expensive gift, usually of livestock. God is saying, can you possibly imagine an Israelite dragging in a lame goat into the palace or one that was so riddled with tumours that it could hardly stand and then announcing, Your Excellency, I've brought you this gift as a token of my esteem and my loyalty. Now please grant my humble request. They probably wouldn't make it out of the palace alive. Yet, says the prophet, this is what you do, not to your governor, but to the king of the universe. And to the God who has redeemed you. And you've the nerve to ask God then to be gracious to you. You must be joking, he applies in verse 8. Except, of course, this is no joking matter. Do you know what says God in verse 10? It would be better if you shut the doors of the temple and stop making sacrifices altogether. Be a whole lot better. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. And then in verses 12 and 13, Malachi exposes the true attitude of the priests. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled. That's probably better translated, it may be defiled. It doesn't matter if it's defiled. And of its food, it may be despised. In other words, the attitude is that it doesn't really matter what is offered to God, so long as the ritual is performed, so long as we've gone through the ceremony, do you see how God has taken for granted? Um, in March 2009, when Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, he made a formal visit to the United States. And this visit was intended to be an affirmation of the very special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom. 
The British knew how special friendships were expressed between world leaders when they met in this way. And so to mark the visit and show how important they saw this relationship, the British government carefully prepared some special gifts for Gordon Brown to present to Barack Obama. Uh, Mr Brown handed over a, a desk pen holder. It wasn't, anyone, it wasn't one that you could buy in a shop. It was hand-carved from the oak timber of the HMS Garnet, a 19th century warship that helped stamp out the slave trade. It was rich with history of the bond between the United Kingdom and America. Um, it was the sister ship of the vessel from which timbers were also taken to build Mr Obama's desk for the Oval Office. That was pretty special, wasn't it? Another treasure given to the US President was the framed original commission for the HMS Resolute, which was that sister ship from which Mr Obama's desk was made, and which for historical reasons uh, had symbolised the bond between uh, the, the United States and Britain since the time of Queen Victoria. Finally, Mr Brown gave President Obama a first edition set of the seven-volume classic biography of Winston Churchill by Sir Martin Gilbert. So as you can see, all of these special gifts, gifts were, were very thoughtfully selected to affirm how much Britain cared for the United States. So what gift did this highly esteemed friend give to Britain in return? A 25 DVD collector's pack of American movies which could be purchased from any souvenir shop in Washington. <laughs> to add insult to injury, it was claimed by one British newspaper that the DVDs were in United States format <laughs> and could not even be viewed on a British DVD player, so Gordon Brown couldn't even watch them. <laughs> this was hardly a proper way. <laughs> it's a classic photo, isn't it? I couldn't resist that one. This was hardly a way, the way to treat a great friend. Mr Brown said nothing, but who could blame him for feeling insulted? How might God feel about what you and I offer to him? I think God's opening words in Malachi are designed to, to pierce our hearts. It might even be a spiritual slap in the face. It's certainly a wake-up call. I have loved you. Why are you neglecting me and taking me for granted? There may even be someone here who's not yet put their trust in Jesus. Then this is a kind of an invitation to know God's love, to receive his forgiveness for the way that you have treated him. Don't ignore Jesus any longer. Uh, if you're a believer, and I assume most of you are, then then you know how much God has loved you through Jesus. He's rescued you. He's sacrificed his own life for you, his own blood, so that you can be completely forgiven. He's adopted you as his son or as his daughter. He's working everything together for your good so that nothing can separate you from his love that is in Jesus Christ. Did you notice that the prophet points out in verse 11 that the reason we can begin to take God for granted is that we lose sight of his greatness. 
Look back at verse 11 of chapter 1. Is it possible that in some measure, at least, we too have forgotten that our God is the one who has said, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising and setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, we're told in Hebrews 1. He's the one who made the universe. He sustains all life and all of creation by his powerful word. He surpasses all others a million times over. And it's in Jesus that your true joy and satisfaction is to be found. How easy is it then when we have all of the distractions of the world around us and just the, the busyness of daily life to lose sight of the supreme greatness of Jesus? His name rolls off our lips so easily, doesn't it? God is saying to Israel around 450 BC, he's saying to us here at our church camp this weekend, see how I have loved you. He knows that we are most blessed when we're giving him the most honour. God is not interested in just the scraps of your life, the leftovers that aren't good for anything else. It's so easy to become less concerned about godly living and more about personal comfort and happiness. Less about prayer and, and more about television. Less about his kingdom and more about your family. Jesus deserves and demands your whole self and, and calls you to love his glory more than anything else. It's time to rethink what it means to be loved by God, says Malachi. Is it possible that in some way or another you have taken God for granted? God's message through Malachi is a gracious opportunity then to repent for taking God for granted, to remember how he has loved you through the Lord Jesus and to take the necessary steps in your life to give him the honour that is due to him. I think we should pray, don't you? Let's um, go in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word uh, delivered to your people so many years ago and yet so uh, relevant and important for us today. Father, we pray for our own minds and our hearts that uh, we would uh, uh, be ever mindful of your great love for us, of how you have loved us, particularly in rescuing us uh, from sin and judgment uh, through your dear and precious son, Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that we would be people who would uh, uh, analyse our lives, analyse our priorities, that uh, we would not give you the scraps, but indeed that we would uh, take up our cross daily and follow you, that we would die to self and live for yourself. And so we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.